What's up, fellow passengers? It is a pleasure to hear you back again on our journey through movies in the rearview mirror. I am Scotty Williams, and I've got my co-pilots with me, Trevor Kirkendall, and our new, I would say, uh, honorary official uh, ride-along E for the, the trip, my beautiful, lovely, talented wife, Heather Williams. How are both of you guys doing today? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's good to be back, sir, after <laughs> almost a year off. It's hard yeah. to believe. Yeah. Yeah. So in, I, in the words of the country singer, it's been a hell of a year, right? Lots of lots yeah. of different stuff. So um, just to give a heads up to our listeners, we're going to do a little bit of a format change to be more inclusive, have a few more movies, have a little bit more to talk about, maybe be a little interactive for our listeners. So uh, what we're going to do is each of us have picked a movie that goes along with a theme. The person who chose that movie will introduce it, go through the basic details, just like we always have. We'll have our conversation about it. And then from there, we'll then get to talk about three movies and give everybody the chance to enjoy just a little bit more of some of these classic films, which now, uh, as you've been following, we were at a strict 20 years, but now basically it's everything 20 years and older. So uh, uh, Trevor, what was our theme for June? Well, for our theme for June, I guess we kind of decided to kick things off with, uh, you know, summer movie season. Um, so we looked at all the different movies that were the top grossing movies of the summer, the year that they came out. So from that list, thinking 20 years ago and further back, uh, we each picked a movie that topped the block, the box office for the summer. So, and as I stumble over my words, I guess it's appropriate at this point to say that in an effort to save time (laughs) and sanity, and to hopefully yes. bring this to you a little bit more often. Uh, everything you hear is going to be live. Um, we're not going to edit any of this. We're going to hit the stop button when we're done and rip the audio right from uh, the video. So uh, you will hear all the ums and buts and errors and false starts <laughs> and false stops and all the all the shenanigans that go on. And uh, we'll, we'll try to curb the language to keep the explicit tag off of it too but hopefully that doesn't slip through um so yeah Can't be too controversial here yeah so <laughs> I honestly think- what they're gonna learn is just that trevor and his editing uh wiped away all of the times that i was chasing rabbits while we were talking about movies that's right yeah <laughs> exactly um we'll try to keep an eye on the time so it doesn't get too over bloated but uh um you know i've been listening to podcasts as i drive in my car and it seems like people don't really care that podcasts are long anymore. If they're short, they're short. If they're long, they're long. People are still going to listen to them. So Mm -hmm. I guess if you like what we're talking about, you'll listen no matter what. So there you go. Two different target demos, right? People that need a short one, people need a long one. There we go. Well, I I guess that means we kick it off with mine, right? Yeah, we'll kick it off with uh, Scotty. Why don't you tell us about the movie that you chose for us to watch this month uh, based on our our um our our uh criteria you know, our criteria there for um top grossing movie of the summer the year it came out so my choice for top grossing movie the year it came out uh, was a 1982 release we watched uh, my choice was et the extraterrestrial directed by steven spielberg Uh, I chose this movie for a very specific reason. Honestly, it was one of those where when you're looking back to the movies and you look at the grosses, 
the June releases, there's a lot of great choices in there. So many great summer choices. You've got uh, Ghostbusters. You've got Back to the Future. There were several I had to pull back on and say, gosh, I can't watch this yet. We can do this later. But E.T. Uh, stood out to me because it made an insane, mind-boggling amount of money in 1982 terms. Adjusted for inflation, E.T. made $1.2 billion dollars good for fourth best all time. That is insane. Um, When you look at the top movies all time in box office, even now you're going to see, you know, Trevor and I, you've talked this about before um, Marvel movies, superhero movies, big franchise movie. And there's ET still hanging on, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, even a movie from 1982. But uh, anyway, to give you guys the tale of the tape, E.T. starred Henry Thomas, Robert McNaughton, uh, Drew Barrymore, very young, very little, adorable Drew Barrymore, uh, D. Wallace, Peter Coyote, who had the best character name in the movie, uh, Sean Fry, C. Thomas Howe, and Erica Aleniak in a very small role. But this was also her feature film de- uh, debut as well. E.T. had a budget of $10.5 million, domestic gross of $435 million, worldwide gross $792 million dollars. All of that on an $11 million budget that if you look at the movie, you wouldn't even guess. You would say you would have thought it cost more. Um, it did win the Oscar for best sound, best visual effects and effects, best sound effects, editing, and best original score for John Williams. Could not agree more. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, critics gave it a 99%, uh, an amazing score for Rotten Tomatoes. They said, uh, playing as both an exciting sci-fi adventure and a remarkable portrait of childhood, Steven Spielberg's touching tale of a homesick alien retains a piece of movie magic for young and old. And last note on this, Roger Ebert's acclaimed movie critic of this time period gave the movie four stars, said the movie is quite a narrative accomplishment, revealing facts about E.T.'s nature, developing the personalities of Elliot, his mother, brother, and sister, involving federal space agencies, touching on extraterrestrial medicine, biology, and communication, and it still inspires genuine laughter and tears. So uh, to open it up for everybody, when you first saw E.T., what did you think of it? I did not like this movie. Um, I saw this movie. (laughs) I see you guys laughing at me. Um, The first time I saw this movie, I think I was about 10 years old and I saw it at my aunt and uncle's house. And it, first of all, it terrified me, right? There was like the first 10 to 15 minutes of the film, like just were terrifying. So that just kind of set the tone for me of, man, this is scary. And why are my aunt and uncle letting me watch this with my cousins? Um, And I thought that E.T. was disgusting. I thought that he was like slimy looking and gross. Um, And so (laughs) I did. I was like a 10 year old girl. So, you know, so like I I did not like this movie. It it terrified me. I hated it. I just was. Oh, I did not like it. I never wanted to see it again. (laughs) I I think I was probably about six or seven when I saw it. Um, We had a copy of it on VHS and we watched one it. of the green copies, right? Oh God. I don't even know. <laughs> um, yeah. We, I think the first time I ever, ever saw it was maybe at a family friend's house. I can't remember, but I was probably in that six or seven age range, kindergarten, first grade, somewhere around there. And yeah, I can see where Heather's coming from about it being kind of frightening. I thought, you know, white ashen et laying in the creek is kind of a frightening image honestly um so uh i didn't hate it i loved it i wanted to come back and watch more of it and of course as i 
got older. I mean, this is this is one of the most iconic movies of all time. So it's really hard to, uh, you know, avoid any kind of imagery of it as you're just kind of looking at any other movies. It's spoofed all the time. Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment logo is quite literally the the um, bicycle in front of the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the score iconic so it's, absolutely yeah it's, it's really hard to sort of get away from this movie or, or bury it in your past so mm-hmm. um it had been a while since i watched it but i remembered every single moment of it so what about you scotty first time you saw it um i remember the green vhs it was funny i knew that because we that's where i watched it at my house and I think it was with my um, probably with my dad, and my mom. But what I remember about it was the green VHS was made because I read later that it was made because they were trying to delay pirates. And it wasn't actually released on VHS until much, much later. From what I understood, I read something to the effect of Spielberg didn't want to didn't want to cheapen the movie experience by having it released on VHS. But then so many people pirated it and they got so many complaints about people watching the movie pirated that they finally got him to cave on making a VHS copy. And it was the green one, I guess, to deter pirates or something like that. Some bit of trivia, but um, I remember my reaction, I would say was somewhere between yours and Heather's, you know, <laughs> somewhere in that, in that universe between your, your, both of your responses. I liked it. I thought it was good. Uh, I'm not going to lie that the opening had me feeling very much the same way. We'll talk about that a little bit, but uh, I felt very much the same way about it in, in the opening, very tense, uh, almost scary, in places, um, much of that attributed to John Williams' score and how good it is, but definitely uh, felt that as I watched it um, when I was a kid. But it, again, it grows on you. It's a great story. By the end of it, you know, bike flies off in the distance. You're like, oh my gosh, yes. So yeah, that was uh, really entertaining for me. Um, so uh, what were some things you guys noticed as you watched it on the second time around? Um, I think when I was watching it, what I was really focused on was whether or not the copy I was watching was going to be the, I guess it was the 20th anniversary release. Um, And to see the terrible added scenes with a very obvious CG ET instead of the puppet that they had on the set. Yep. uh, And also the digitally replaced uh, walkie talkies instead of guns. Mm -hmm. Interesting choice there, right? Yeah. Yeah. That didn't sit well with me when I saw that in the theater back in i guess 2002 uh thankfully the version i had was not that version it didn't have those new (laughs) scenes in it it did not have the the cgi walkie talkies i mean what what reason is there for et to lift up everybody on those um bikes over the police barricade if they're just holding walkie talkies just that's an excellent point yeah yes drive right through and the shotguns yeah. appeared, if I remember, in the shot for what three, three, four seconds, maybe just yeah. long enough. For it was to go, not long. They're going to shoot him, really. And, yeah. and it, but it creates the stakes, right? It raises the stakes right to that moment to where it's a real payoff when they do take off. Although, let's be honest, if they did have shotguns, it's not like they would have just picked them off in the air. But you know, yeah. Um, but well, yeah, no, I agree. Be with standing you. there on the ground, going, "Oh, they're flying! Let me shoot them!" Or would you be like? <gasps> Yeah, no, fair point. Yeah. Uh, but no, the 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 stakes were definitely raised with that moment. And that's one of the reasons I think, because didn't Spielberg go back and later say he didn't like those additions and he regretted that? I don't know if he said that or not, but it wouldn't surprise me. That was at a time when everybody was sort of redoing all their movies. That was when 
only a few years removed from the Star Wars special editions. I think those mm-hmm. were in 97. Um, so only mm-hmm. five years removed from that. And those have been forever uh, tarnished because yes. of that. So. Yes. Well, it's interesting that we wind up talking about Star Wars so quickly, talking about E.T. because of how many <laughs> things tie so well, right? I was telling right. Heather when we were watching the movie, right? The score from E.T., kind of the, the again, it's John Williams. He you know scored Star Wars, same situation. But the, the, the major theme of E.T. is almost, I would say, two or three notes different from Star Wars, right? Yes, it was very similar. Um, you know, among other things, there's lots of other connections to make. But uh, it's funny that one of the connections is the directors went back and, and put some horrible CGI monstrosity on their story. Yeah. Well, the Star Wars references don't end there. I mean, that's Spielberg and George Lucas being such close friends and them kind of throwing stuff into their movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, him showing E.T. around the room and he has the Greedo, um, the Greedo action figure. Mm-hmm. And then when E.T. is walking around in the uh, ghost outfit and he walks by the Yoda mm-hmm. and he starts saying home. Uh, there's another one for <laughs> you there. Yep. And even and even George Lucas paying it back in. I, I think it was star wars episode one where where they're in the senate and you can see in the background Mm -hmm. um a delegation of et's at the uh at the galactic senate or whatever it's called yeah Um, it was in the phantom menace i actually uh went back and and looked at that yeah it was it was in the phantom menace which is funny because that would have been a total one-off you know that many years ago now that's interconnected universe right et's a jedi now right confirmed yeah pretty much um i in the star Wars universe and move stuff with his mind. He just needs a lightsaber now. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. It's uh, it's not far fetched. And if they ever did a crossover, I mean, how crazy would that be? Right. (laughs) Hey, crossovers are where the money is now, dude. You don't, you can't make a movie if it's not in a big shared universe now. Right. Um, Um, I I, I do want to go back and and you guys are talking about the opening scene of this movie mm -hmm. and how it's really kind of terrifying and frightening. Yeah. Um, But it's actually, uh, and it is it's pretty intense at the beginning um it's actually something you will never ever really see in a major hollywood movie anymore because they set up so much of that story so flawlessly and they don't say a word of dialogue yes that is so true absolutely you know everything you need to know about this movie right off the bat you know that there are aliens they have visited earth they Mm -hmm. left one behind and you know who the bad guy is Mm-hmm. The no. keys yeah the, the, the most animated fleshed out character in the first 10 minutes was that set of keys yeah yeah and that's all you mm-hmm. see for the rest of the movie right. but you know when yeah. those keys are around is bad news yes um, even though the guy turns out to not be like a horrible person or whatever mm-hmm. you know right off the bat that that's who you're you know meant to meant to be um set up as the antagonist so mm-hmm. but really flawlessly executed you don't see that kind of stuff anymore i mean that's visual storytelling that's what mm-hmm. a movie is a movie is a visual yes. medium and yeah when they open up you know like avengers this massive huge action flick and how does it open with a couple guys walking down a hall talking like setting up the story as they're talking mm-hmm. snooze fest what are all those yeah. star wars prequels a bunch of people walking down hallways talking Yep. You know, and you wonder why I say a movie bores me and why that's the cardinal sin. <laughs> cardinal <laughs> sin, movie bores Trevor. That's why, because it's that's boring. I don't want to come to a movie and watch talking. I know there's certain things you can't really 
um, you can't really uh, do without. But um, why does our thing just say we have 10 minutes left? What we'll do is we'll just, we'll, we'll wrap this segment and then we'll just pull another one. And I thought I had zoom pro, but it's okay. We'll have a, we'll have a, um, a commercial break for any, for, any, <laughs> for any sponsor that wants to, you know, help us out. This yeah. is where yeah. your ad will go at the end of the zoom meeting. hundred percent right here. <laughs> um, but, but so, uh, but yeah, no, and, and actually going back to visual storytelling, I noticed something in this film, you know, I did read some stuff a lot about, you know, Spielberg shooting a lot of video, a lot of the, the angles happening from a kid's angle, like low. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell me, you know, you're, you're the, the visual storytelling guy. Tell me about the light, the shadows, the fog. There was so much of in this movie and so many scenes where, especially early on, there's just so much darkness. Yeah. I think that's, I, I don't think I would read too much into that other than the mm-hmm. fact they're just trying to mask certain things. I, so we watched this movie with my kid and he was pretty bored of it, honestly, but there was a part toward the beginning where he was a little bit interested in it. And he kept saying, when are we going to see him? And I kept saying yeah. when they're ready to show him to us. Uh-huh. So I think a lot of that has to deal with, with that. But I mean, you watch any movie with Spielberg and his whole thing is, you know, the lights, coming in through the the windows mm-hmm. yes creating this kind of foggy sort of uh atmosphere in any scene i mean any movie you see it in it doesn't have to be this it could be um uh i mean you see it in schindler's list pretty easily just because that's black and white you see it pretty easily in i mean it's in private ryan it's in minority report mm-hmm. it's in lincoln i mean he just he washes his film sets with the light coming in through the windows and then he's got this haze in there too that really kind of allows you to see the beams of light coming in um so that that's one thing and that's his uh um uh he didn't he didn't shoot this movie but once spielberg got linked up with his uh favorite cinematographer Janusz Kaminski back in uh, 93 I think for Schindler's List was his first movie he did with him Um, and he's filmed every movie Spielberg's done since then so I think he was looking for a particular look he was getting it early on Uh, and then Mm -hmm. once he met uh, once he met him he was able to really retain that look moving forward so Uh, but you definitely see it in this movie. That's for sure. Uh, and it doesn't, for, for whatever reason, it doesn't feel dated. And that might just be because, you know, he's such a iconic movie maker. And you can really think of the movies that he's done and, you know, the movies that he's done more recently, too. And picture them and they're all kind of got that same look and feel to it. Hmm. No, absolutely. Um, and, and the other thing that I would say really stood out about this film was the, I've said it again, the music with uh, John Williams and how good it was, uh, especially for me, that last scene, that last climactic scene in the music was amazing. And what I read about that was that Spielberg essentially, instead of having the scene and having the sound person score the scene while they watch it, apparently um, Stephen told John to basically conduct a normal song as he would. And then they edited the scene around the song. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that before yeah. about this. Hmm. Um, and it makes perfect sense because as Elliot is watching the spaceship go away, there's the hug, this, the music's building, building, boom, big crescendo shot as, uh, as the, the spaceship flies away. I thought that was really brilliant. Yeah, yeah really, that was really cool. Yeah. It's a really the, dynamic ending. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, Heather, what was your, uh, what was your favorite part of the movie? Um, 
You know, it's kind of funny that you asked me that because I didn't feel much differently about the film now than I did when I was a little girl, um, which is kind of funny because I I really thought I would. I really thought that I would see something like, I mean, yes, I realized that it, it's a better film than I thought it was, but um, I don't know that I really had a favorite part. I really don't. That's really odd to say, I feel like, but I really just can't think of one. Ladies and gentlemen, the only person on planet Earth that doesn't like E.T. <laughs> uh, be prepared for a theme there, Trevor. <laughs> I know. I'm weird. I get it. Thanks. No, weird, weird is the wrong word. You are not weird. You have different taste, and that's okay. But, um, well, well, Trevor, how about you? Favorite, uh, favorite part of your, uh, your favorite part of the movie, Trevor? Well, the beginning is really pretty phenomenal. Um, uh, the um, the first time they take flight in the bike, really good. Um, the ending with the flight too. Um, I mean, the whole movie, like I said, is just completely iconic. And I don't know, there's something about Spielberg directing a movie about a kid and like kind of the the wonders of kind of growing up and experience the world for the first time sort of you know that's sort of his real big soft spot so whenever he comes across a story like that there's really just something special that gets elevated with it uh so i can't really say there's a um i can't really say there's a a, a favorite scene that sticks out really and I guess we um, got upgraded too, so we don't have to cut this off. Sorry, sponsors. <laughs> yeah, no, um, no more for that. Well, no, so, well, a, bill, a bill was paid to get us here. Just to put it, to put it for me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, we'll, we'll get so, to that. Uh, so I did go back and think about it. Um, and I do think I, I like the scene where they're in the kitchen and um, Gertie is trying to tell her mom about E.T. Oh. And E.T. walks by her like four different times in that one scene. And she's like so distracted and so busy just putting groceries away that she literally has no clue that he's standing right there. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that kind of like summarize all the adults in this movie that they're just in their own little world and they are yeah. not caring at all what actually is really happening here mm-hmm. um, until the yes. very end? Yes, uh, because let me tell you, this woman was terrible, right? She left her, Gertie was what, probably six, maybe in the movie, five? Mm-hmm. Yeah, something yeah. like that. She, she left her at home. She's like, I got to go get your brother at school. I'll be back. And then <laughs> <Yeah>. she, <laughs> right? She's like five years old. She's like, see you later, honey. Like, well, to be fair, she had just heard a teacher tell her that her son was intoxicated at school. So she was probably in a little bit of shock. <laughs> that's true but get the kid and put him in the car um and then in the in the uh, opening scene like she's standing in the kitchen in her robe while her son and like some of his friends are are playing you know this game or whatever and like really in your robe really? yeah they're playing they're playing a very early version of dungeons and dragons actually yeah, yeah. um funny funny note on that the guy you know the one guy's on the phone getting the instructions and the orders mm-hmm. and they're they're playing with this cardboard house uh, that was pretty interesting I, I do want to bring up one thing, and I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I wasn't nitpicking something a little bit too much sure. here. So mm-hmm. um, the mom is an interesting character. Um, you know, the, she, she's in her own little world for the whole thing. And 
I mean, they, they tie it together with the whole, like her husband left her for somebody else, I guess. And they're down in Mexico. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll give her a little bit of a pass of being distracted because she's got a lot on her mind. But one thing that I, I couldn't really let go of was there was when she first meets ET for the first time. Yeah. And Elliot's laying on the floor in the bathroom with him and she sees him and he, Elliot or ET reaches out to her or whatever. She's terrified. I mean, she's absolutely Mm -hmm. terrified. She, she grabs Elliot and they haul out of that house so Mm -hmm. fast, but then they're greeted by um, the NASA spaceman. So then jump ahead a few minutes and (laughs) ET dies on the table and she's super sad with Elliot about it. So how much time has passed between the moment she met E.T. and the moment E.T. passes away that she's completely changed her tune over this like, oh, my God, there's this creepy alien thing dying in my my bathroom or whatever. And then, you know, essentially what, maybe six hours later? Yeah. Elliot, I'm so sorry. Your best friend just died in our house. Like they, they sure got from one point to the next pretty quick on that one, I thought. Yeah. So. You know, I, I could give him a pass for that um, only because it's not, again, if you think of ET in the pure sense as he's like a dog who wandered into the house, um, it does happen a lot of times that parents will, if it makes the kid happy, like she experiences ET in the relationship that it has with, that he has with Elliot. Right. And the relationship with Elliot is probably what changed mom's mind. Perhaps like, Hey, this, this alien really, my son really loves this thing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and, and perhaps that's what uh, that's what eventually does it for. Yeah. And that's a completely valid reason. Um, I just think it got there really, really quick. Uh, the, mm-hmm. other, the other thing I want to know is, did the government need to be that dramatic about walking down the street? <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you. They did, yeah. Yeah. That was a, yeah. Quite a, yeah. A very intimidating, like eight guys deep strolling down in the sunlight. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. These, but it did make for a funny camera shot. I mean, it was, I mean, you know, this, these guys walking down the road, they're the, all these cars and they're like, it's like strolling down the road in their suits and their walkie talkies and their, just rolling down the plastic that they're about to cover the house with. I know. And they couldn't like, didn't that thing like push up? No, they got to roll it down. Like they're rolling a steamroller or something. Yeah. Just Um, roll this thing down here and cover this house. Nothing nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Yeah, no, it's, it's a Valley in California. They're going to have something to talk about. Like, right. Like all the neighbors outside. Um, Well, one thing I, I thought was interesting is when the, when the first guy comes in the door in the NASA suit, right? For a minute, you're like, wow, what movie did this just become? But then your thought is this in 1982, if government says, Hey, we've got to go after this alien. We don't know what it's like. We don't know how it affects you. What's the most secure suit we have. Yeah. The NASA space suit, right. It's designed for you to survive in space. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's funny is they all approach them in the spacesuits, And then the next scene, they're all dressed like they're in an ER. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but he's behind plastic now, so they're safe. It's yeah. all good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's um, all you need. Well, um, and, and an interesting note on uh, Peter Coyote's character Keys, uh, that one conversation he gets to have with Elliot, where he he says something interesting, and he says, "I, you know, it visited me when I was something to the effect of I saw ET when I was a kid." Um, there's some speculation that uh, Keys actually makes contact with the ET, and there's a bit of a beat of like they know each other, so it's possible that ET came in his childhood, however many years ago and met him too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that's one line I never really understood when I was 
um, when I was watching it as a kid, like he came to me too. I've been wanting this since I was five years old or whatever he says. And yeah. that always sort of confused me. It's like he, he came to you and now you've been wanting to see him. I, that didn't strike me when I was younger, but I guess it makes sense now. He's like, Hey, he came to me and I've been wanting to come back since then. So, I mean, um, it, it's the simplest explanation, but also for a minute, you think about it and you say, man, that, that sets him up to be a bad guy too. Right. Like I've been waiting for this moment since I was 10 to, you know, do whatever a bad guy would want to do with the yeah. team. Yeah. They're um, just going to cut him all up. Yeah. So yeah. have you ever seen any of the audition videos that um, Henry Thomas did for this movie? Um, I read that he did a really good, like he channeled a dying dog or something and it really moved Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Well, they, they said that your, your best friend is getting taken away or something like that. Mm. Um, yeah. They said they were all in tears. And I mean, after, after he's done with the scene, you can hear Spielberg in the background. He's like, all right, kid, you get the job. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, not a, not a whole lot of, I mean, I would say the most solid Hollywood career after this is Drew Barrymore's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Henry um, Thomas bit of a Renaissance right now. So um, he's mm-hmm. been hooked up with uh and if we were not live, I'd be able to just spit it out to you right now. I can't think of the name. Oh, I remember his name. Mike Flanagan. He's a, a horror director. Yeah. Um, he's got to deal with Netflix. So he's done three shows for Netflix that are um, kind of horror yeah. based. Uh, the Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor and Midnight Mass. Hmm. And now the next show he's doing is The Fall of the House of Usher. And Ooh. Henry Thomas is in all of them. Um, he has bigger roles in the first two, uh, not so much in Midnight Mass, but he's definitely in it. And I'm not exactly sure what his role is going to be in House of Usher yet. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, he's been popping up in that stuff. And I've seen him in a couple other movies. So he's still he's still hanging around. He's probably 50, but he's still kicking. Well, uh, any so I guess we got to go ahead and wrap up on E.T. Any kind of parting notes, anything we want to say as we uh, as we fi- finalize this? The only thing I would say is that. Um, really, really special movie. I agree with Trevor. It is a special movie. I actually don't know that I find it exceptionally we we rewatchable, like something I would watch again and again and again and again. But still, an excellent movie. Not, not the kind of movie I would decide to sit down like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to watch ET tonight. Uh, but I don't think that makes it a bad movie because some movies that are amazing are not rewatchable. Right. Right. No, I mean I. This is still one of the greatest movies ever made. It did not win Best Picture of the Year, and that's still one of the biggest robberies of the 1980s because this movie lost to Gandhi, um, <laughs> which I guess kind of seemed like a good idea at the time. But didn't even Richard Attenborough say that he thought he that uh, I read that Richard Attenborough said he thought that uh, the wrong choice was made. Yeah, I, he's probably right. Well, he is right. I if he said that, then yeah, I guess. No hard feelings though, because ten years later Spielberg had him in Jurassic Park. So, and uh, Heather, your thoughts? Um, you know, like I said before, it's it was definitely not my not my forte. I'm not a big sci-fi person, um, so this was kind of a, a weird one for me. But um, obviously, it's an iconic film. So there you go. Yeah. Well, when we get, it's going to be really good when we find a, a topic that has to deal with science fiction. <laughs> see what movie, <laughs> see what movie you bring to the table on that one. Oh no! Yeah, um, sci- sci-fi will not uh, be your strong point, and we'll go ahead and uh, get that out of the way. Oh, I'm in trouble. Yeah. 
<laughs> but um, well, well, I guess we should jump on to the next movie, right? Yeah. Speaking of movies, Heather brings to the table um, the movie you selected for this month's theme. Yes, um, I picked Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So um, this movie came out in 1988, and it was directed by Robert Robert Zemeckis, starring Bob Hoskins, Christopher Lloyd, Joanna Cassidy, Charles. Is it Fleischer or that would be Fleischer? Fleischer yeah. yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Stubby K and Alan Tilvern. So this movie had a budget of seventy million dollars uh, domestically. It made one hundred and fifty-six million, and worldwide three hundred and twenty-nine million dollars. So not bad at all. Um, it did win an Oscar for best film editing, best effects, sound effects editing, and visual effects. That's pretty impressive. Um, Rotten Tomatoes gave this, uh, the critics gave it a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. The audience gave it an 85%, which I was a little surprised by. Um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is an innovative and entertaining film that features a groundbreaking mix of live action and animation with a touching and original story to boots. Yeah. Roger Ebert. Yeah. Roger Ebert, four stars. So, oh yeah, this is, uh, like like it says, innovative and entertaining. This this is a landmark film in yes in the history of, of filmmaking. Just because of what it was able to do, and I guess we should also qualify that seventy million dollar budget was not something Disney was really interested in doing when it came to this one. They mm-hmm. were very 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 concerned about that because at the time this would have been one of the most expensive movies ever made. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I had read that Disney of uh, the first proposal they gave Disney was 50 million. Disney said, no, they turned mm-hmm. in a budget at 30 million. Disney said yes. And then the budget absolutely ballooned to 70 million. Yeah. And they actually do bring in um, Steven Spielberg again here. I mean, King of the eighties. So he's going to be in pretty much any movie we talk about from the eighties. Sure. Um, he, uh, he came in and, he was given a considerable amount of creative control over this project as well, but he was pretty instrumental, I think, in, in getting a lot of these um, uh, popular cartoon characters all together in this movie. Um, and I guess if you wanted to, you know, use a modern word, this was probably one of the original crossover films. As, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As, yes. As I think to this day, it is still the only time that Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse have been on the screen at the exact same time. Correct. Mm-hmm. And honestly, any time after that may not count because Disney did not own everyone and everything back in this time period. It's a good point. Now they do own everyone and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Actually, our commercial probably should be for Disney. I'm sure they probably own something we're using right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure of it. Um, but uh, no, yeah, I agree. Absolute landmark. And I will take a second because there is some really cool things to talk about about this movie. Uh, one mainly being the amazing work of the animators who had to take the time to hand draw all of, cause remember at this time, these characters are still hand drawn and animated into these scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you think about the millions of pieces of paper and the millions of drawings that had to be made for everything that happened. And um, I talk about something from this film that became part of Disney's culture later on and a really great thing to talk about. And that's bumping the lamp. Um, oh so, yes uh trevor are you familiar with bumping the lamp um maybe but i don't so, know so do you remember the scene when they are uh, hiding roger in the back speakeasy behind the bar mm-hmm. and there's a lamp that is dangling from the ceiling and as roger and eddie walk in because 
that's where Eddie comes in and Roger is uh, going nuts and singing and he's mad because he's been telling him to lay low. So he grabs him and shoves him into the room. And as they go in, they, they hit this lamp and the lamp for the rest of the scene swings around the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for animators, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're an animator, that's a nightmare because that's changing lights, that's changing shadows, that's changing, mm-hmm. that's a whole lot of stuff that's not necessary for that scene, right? He could have walked into that thing. The lamp doesn't have to move. It doesn't have any bearing on the scene, but doing that created so much extra work to be done right. And obviously it came off brilliantly. The scene is perfect. You know, Roger moves and changes as the lights do just like Eddie does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Disney created this term called bumping the lamp to signify any time going above and beyond is necessary for the product. Uh Aha. And it became part of this lingo of Disney later on, just, Hey, bump the lamp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't have to worry about that anymore because they just have a computer program that does all the shading for them. <laughs> yeah, the lamp moves yeah. a lot more now. Yeah, now it has yeah. light room and whatever you need to make sure it moves well. But yeah. Yeah. But back in the day when that meant an animator drew an extra 10,000 drawings of Roger Rabbit moving, yeah. um, that's that's something special. So I seem to remember going to the movies in the early 90s and sometimes there would be these cartoons before the movie started. Um, and a couple of them I remember featured Roger Rabbit. Mm-hmm. So I always just kind of assumed that Roger Rabbit was a cartoon character that sort of dated back forever, yeah. similar to Bugs Bunny and mm-hmm. and Mickey Mouse and all that. Mm-hmm. Not true. No, not true. Kind of an amalgamation of both of them, if I understand yeah. it. Yep. And mm-hmm. the character was created specifically for the book that this movie is based on. Mm hmm. And then just sort of became uh, a, a character they used on those early shorts um, that showed up in the movie theaters. And just, I never knew that um, until just recently. Like, I always kind of figured that Roger Rabbit was like an already established character or whatever. But no, the, the, the first <laughs> time anybody would have seen or heard him would have yep. been this movie mm-hmm. in 1988. So pretty interesting. Definitely. Definitely interesting. Um, and uh, Charles Fleischer, apparently during the filming of the movie, dressed as the rabbit <laughs> <laughs> when he was doing his, uh, the joke was apparently he dressed as the rabbit and they would, they would apparently see him in the cafeteria and talk about the awful effects on the rabbit movie. <laughs> yeah. Because again, a human being in that costume would look just ridiculous. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I would say that my favorite part of this film is just how good Bob Hoskins is. Oh Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, phenomenal. And not to mention the fact that, you know, talking technically, he has to act against pretty much nothing, right? There's nothing yeah. there. Yeah. Nothing. And he does it consistently and flawlessly. And there's right. no like, I, I highly doubt that there were like green screen actors, you know, because they do this stuff now and like everybody, there's so, there's a, a, a person there that they can yeah. bounce off of and do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can't imagine that they had that kind of stuff going on in this movie in 1988, that they would have been able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he just had to be like, okay, well, this is where he is. I guess I ring his neck like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and he lean and I lean in and kiss nothing. Right. It's just, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, apparently there was a funny line that Bob Hoskins said when his children saw the movie, they got, or his kid, I think he's his son, uh, yeah. got mad at him because he said, uh, you did a movie with Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse and you didn't let me meet them. 
Very, uh, very, very kid thing there. But yes. no, I no. thought Bob just delivered a phenomenal, uh, nuanced performance. Um, early in the film, he's he's supposed to be this like loser alcoholic, basically. And so if you notice early on in the film, he rubs his mouth a lot when he sees alcohol. Mm-hmm. So like when he's talking to RK Maroon in the studio, when he sees the bottle of whatever it is behind him, first thing he does is goes, he like rubs his mouth like he's like he's starving. And then he does it again when he sees the bar after he gets off the red car and he did it a couple of times. And I just thought, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously Bob Hoskins just taking his roles very seriously always has Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, really thought he was great in this movie. Yeah. He's certainly really good. And the fact that um, he was not even like the first or second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh choice to be this, you know, they, they, you're going to spend $70 million. Let's get a star in the role, yeah. you know? And sure. Yeah. Bob Hoskins is not exactly uh, an A-lister. I, he never was. No, no. Um, he did some really good stuff, but he was never going to be like, you know, some of these guys. They, like, did, I, I think I read their first choice was Harrison Ford. Like, Either Harrison Ford oh, or Bill yeah. Murray. So, some, of the re- yeah. some of the reads I heard Bill Murray was the choice and they just couldn't get him to, they couldn't connect to talk it through, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, he would have been fine, but I mean, Bob Hoskins, like he kind of fits really well. Yeah, he did. He kind of has this sort of film noir sort of way about him, um, Mm -hmm. this sort of rough kind of way of presenting himself Mm -hmm. where, you know, Bill Murray or Harrison Ford. I mean, they'd have been fine and they would have done a great job and we could be sitting here talking about how incredible they were in this role Mm -hmm. and never know any different. But yeah, I mean, for somebody like him to come out and um to do this and then to get that kind of box office draw after it that's pretty impressive Mm -hmm. so i really yeah he's really great and um i I don't think he gets enough credit for this i think a lot of the a lot of the stuff that really makes this movie special is overlooked by the fact that they actually were able to marry live action and animation for the first time ever on Mm -hmm. screen Mm -hmm. so which is a huge accomplishment. We didn't yeah. even mention the fact that, um, you know, they, they won their three Oscars that we talked about earlier, but they also gave them another one. Just like, hey, your your stuff was so good. Here's another one. Just, for, <laughs> just you know, gave them an award. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you guys did something no one ever thought possible. Here you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and acting opposite of him, Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom, mm-hmm. uh, also I thought did an excellent job. Uh, good voice, good loud, good tone, good facial expressions, right? Like, oh, he never so, blinked on camera. Yeah, yeah. We, we, I, I was reading that he, in order to make the character as real as possible and, and as like cartoon pretending to be human, he didn't blink. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you think about it, yeah, he's a cartoon pretending to be human. That's why his faces look so plastic sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like the part where the guy in the bar makes the joke, like, oh, I've seen a rabbit. Yeah, he's right here. Imaginary rabbit. Everybody's laughing. And then he laughs and his laugh stops everybody dead. Mm-hmm. He gets this yeah. big goofy, you know, teeth grin on his face, and it kills everybody because it's like, oh, that looks fake. Yeah, so unnatural, and he's absolutely phenomenal in this too, like you said. Yeah. Um, but that was a very frightening moment toward the end of the movie too, mm-hmm. when he turns into that, uh, turns into the cartoon version of himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember seeing this when I was younger, and like. I wasn't scared or anything like it wasn't like that, but it was just kind of just unsettling, I guess. Yes. To see that. Actually, I think the biggest thing that like really, like really broke my 10 year old heart when I first saw this 
was that cute little shoe rubbing up against <laughs> oh, him. Oh, I yes. know. Gosh. And he just picks it up and just dips it oh. into the, the dip. Yeah. And you, you watch a cartoon shoe that you've known for all of five seconds die slowly and agonizingly. And then you're just like, oh my gosh, that's awful. Oh my God, um, that's so sad. Right? Yeah, no, 100%. The, the movie was unsettling for me too. In fact, one of my first childhood nightmares uh, was around this film. Like I dreamt that somebody was going to dip me. <laughs> I, I'm yeah. not kidding. I dreamt that I was going to get into, I dreamt that I was being forced to like jump into a big vat of dip and it freaked me out. Um, so but, no, absolutely. But you're not a cartoon. So what were you afraid of? <laughs> I, I mean, it's still turpentine and other crap that's not good for you. So I mean, you true. Know. Not that it would be, not that it would be working out like that, but um, <laughs> why couldn't yeah, you that, just that be, was pretty funny. Why couldn't you just be scared of quicksand like every other kid? <laughs> <laughs> no, I had to be, I had to be scared of this, this yeah. one crazy thing. Um, but uh, no, really, really well done in the animation, really well done in marrying the two together. But mm-hmm. like you said, not enough is said about the fact that it's just a sound movie otherwise. Yeah. Really good story. And of course, the, the story here is is really, I don't want to say dense, but it's really over the head of a child, right? So yes. I didn't understand the whole, like, the real estate aspect of the movie and the, the yes. buying of shares and the, the, the rigging of elections and, and stuff like that. That mm-hmm. was completely lost on me. And honestly, I was probably, I don't remember being, you know, uninterested in it when i was younger but of course i was a lot more interested in it when there were cartoon characters on the screen but it's actually a really good like um it's actually a really good plot for a villain you know they're they're trying mm-hmm. to do all this and he's just going to go in there and completely destroy toontown with this giant huge truck full of dip yep i mean that's that's evil man i mean he was ruthless <laughs> And he well, yeah. He buys the red car just so he can dismantle it, so he can make everybody else drive on his freeway because of that. Yeah, I do right? like I do like the little slight they throw toward the beginning there that says, "This is Los Angeles. We have the best public transportation system in the world." Because anybody that's been to LA knows that that is a crock of crap. <laughs> Might have been the case in '47, but definitely not now. <laughs> definitely not now. Or when the movie came out. Well, yeah. and actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I actually was just pulling up um, Doom's little monologue piece about his vision, right? Where he's monologuing mm-hmm. and he goes, of course not. You know, you lack vision. I see a place where people get on and off the freeway in this big like Christopher Lloyd, you know, the way he does his voice uh, mm-hmm. on and off all day, all night soon. Where Toontown once stood will be a string of gas stations, inexpensive motels, restaurants that serve rapidly prepared food, yep. tire salons, automobile dealerships and wonderful, wonderful billboards. My God, it'll be beautiful. Uh, that's essentially what we have. That, and that's what's there right now. So and was right. probably there in 88. I don't. I'd been there by 1988, but of course I don't remember that, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, that is uh, a perfect foresight into the future there. For him. Oh yeah. Even though the writers know it's coming, but still right. I do like Bob Hoskins freeway. What the freeway. hell is a freeway? <laughs> a freeway. That was something else I, I was watching, uh, watching this and pointing out for a movie that's supposed to take place in California. There's an awful lot of stereotypical New York accents in this movie. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of them bringing in that like film noir aspect to it where yeah. you got to have those rough talking 
mm-hmm. folks and you know the 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 new york accent is a lot better than the than the surfer dude valley kind of sound to it <laughs> well and and yeah again i know i'm just all up on bob hoskins and how amazing he was in this film but just great dialogue because the guy's british right he's a he's a british actor and yeah. he's got this amazingly good deep gruff like his accent like he cuts sometimes when he talks like when he's got rk maroon by the you know by the neck and he's like i'm gonna spend this story for you a story of greed sex and murder and it's just like man mm-hmm. You know, just, but when you hear, it's one of those that you really should, if you haven't heard the actor actually answer questions in his normal voice, it'll blow your mind how good he was. Well, I think he's close to his normal voice when he's in Hook, if you remember that one. Yes. Mr. Smee. That's, Shmee, Shmee. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty close to what he sounds like in real life or what he sounded like in real life. Unfortunately, he is no longer with us. Yes, um, I don't remember when, but yeah. Um, yeah, really just a, uh, really a great great movie i think and nothing's mm-hmm. changed if if anything it's gotten better yes uh, now this is a movie i would say is definitely rewatchable um yeah. you know you can watch it with kids you go because again it's not it's not an overtly kids movie uh but it's not a movie that you that is anything in it that you're gonna have to explain to your kids it'll just fly, like you said it'll just fly over their heads well even at even at nine or ten or whatever i was when i saw it for the first time even i knew what nice booby trap meant <laughs> <laughs> so that was my favorite joke in the movie. You yeah. <laughs> no need to explain that. I'm pretty sure my six-year-old got it too. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, well, on your on your rewatch, and, and we should point out to the to the listeners right now that Heather has not clocked in for a minute because she is uh tending to our son, who I believe just woke up a few minutes ago. But um yeah, what did the not, movie look we've like? We've not for given you? her the silent treatment here. No, 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 no. More than welcome if <laughs> yeah. she when she comes back. And she'll have plenty to say for the next movie, I guarantee you. Yeah. Um, so what was your question? What did I think? Uh what did you think about it in the review? Anything jumped out? No, nothing jumped out. It's still it still stands the test of time, I guess. It still looks good today as it did in the eighties and the nineties when I first mm-hmm. saw it. Um, yeah, I mean the hand-drawn animation is kind of that's sort of a thing of the past there. There's uh, a couple little things in there where you can kind of see where it's, you know, this is the first time they've done it. So there's some maybe glitchy things or it doesn't look quite right. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a man talking to cartoons. So it, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't look like that way when you watch these movies now. And of course, they just use the CG stuff. So, I mean, really, without something like this, we wouldn't have any of these Marvel movies, would we? that's really all they're doing too that's just a bunch of cg crap so well and they're and they're crossing over characters and they're and they're interacting with things that aren't really there although their technology for interacting with things that are not there has improved dramatically right so like if you're talking to the hulk the actor talking to the hulk you know chris chris hemsworth has something to look up at so it's realistic that he's looking up at somebody who's like Mm -hmm. nine feet tall and it's probably the guy holding it is probably mark ruffalo Who's actually <laughs> yeah. acting? So having a lot of fun, you know, holding a, a big head or wearing yeah. a big harness with thing, whatever it was. Yeah, whatever, however they film it. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's it it uh, it holds up. It really does. And it, like I mm-hmm. said, if it's if if anything, it's better. At you know, watching it, you know, at you know, nearly forty instead of ten. You know, because you you understand those little, uh, those little things about. The, the real estate deals and the all the corruption that's going on in there and mm-hmm. the stuff that really makes it seem alive 
So yes, it, it's a plot detail that does not disappear in the important stuff. Right. Um, so Heather just joining us again after putting uh, putting my next big thing, my son, to sleep. Um, uh, any thoughts as you kind of wrap up Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Rearview Mirror, your thoughts? Um, so I really love this movie. I think this movie is brilliant. Um, I love the way that they were able to accomplish, you know, bringing the animation into the live action. Um, and it was just a lot of fun to watch. I've seen it maybe three or four times since I was a kid. I think the first time I saw it, I was about 10 years old. Um, and, you know, as Trevor was just saying, like, as an adult, you really understand like a whole lot more about what's going on in the film. And, um, yeah, I, I really just love this movie. Like, I just love the way that they were able to bring all these elements together. Um, and the animators were just incredible. Like the way I just can't imagine like hand drawing all of these, uh, you know, every single little action um, mm-hmm. for all of these, uh, you know, it was just absolutely incredible. Completely agree. Well, and for, for some context to wrap this up too, it's kind of interesting. I was just thinking about this. So one of the last most recent movies to fit, to feature live characters interacting with animated cartoonish characters would be Space Jam A New Legacy. Mm-hmm. And Space Jam A New Legacy cost $150 million to make. And I would say convincingly that Roger Rabbit's animation and those interactions stand up very well against any modern animation of that type mm-hmm. at, you know, a fraction of the cost, obviously, even in those dollars. And Bob Hoskins acting is way better than whoever it was in space jam, a new legacy. Whatever the, it was. Yeah. <laughs> some guy that can't act. Oh man. Rearview sports coming in June. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, speaking of that, Trevor, I guess we should jump to um, a movie that I'm going to say, uh, drives the rearview movies experience for me now. So go ahead. All right. Yeah. So um, for my pick, top grossing movie of the summer, the year it came out, um, I chose a movie that's been on the tip of everybody's tongue recently, and that is Top Gun. Uh, as we have a the long-awaited sequel has finally come out um, recently. So Top Gun, opening in 1986, directed by the late and great Tony Scott. Uh, this movie, of course, stars Tom Cruise, Kelly McGinnis, Kelly McGillis, excuse me, live. We would not edit that or we can't edit that, can we? <laughs> Sorry, Kelly. Um, yeah. Kelly McGillis, uh, Anthony Edwards, Val Kilmer, Tom Skerritt, Michael Ironside and Tim Robbins, uh, one of his earlier roles. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie came to us with a budget of $15 million and it grossed $180 million in 1986. Very impressive. Worldwide, mm-hmm. $357 million. Ooh. Just a whole ton of money. Um, it was up for numerous Academy Awards, but the one it won was for Best Original Song, which was Take My Breath Away that was performed by Berlin. Oh, that was the song? I didn't notice it that much in the, in the movie. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Once or twice. Um, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, the audience loves it. 83% on mm-hmm. Rotten Tomatoes. The critics, 57%. Uh, big disparity. Um, though it features some of the most memorable and electrifying aerial footage shot with an expert eye for action, Top Gun offers too little for not adolescent viewers to chew on when its characters aren't in the air. Um yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, Roger Ebert, 
guess he's the focus of today quite a bit. Um, he gives us two and a half stars. Uh, he says the remarkable achievement in Top Gun is that it presents seven or eight aerial encounters that are so well choreographed that we can actually follow them most of the time. And the movie gives us a good secondhand sense of what it might be like to be in a dogfight. But he doesn't, well, this doesn't mention uh, the downside of it, which is why he only gives it two and a half stars. So, um, so let's let's uh, let's talk about it a little bit. Um, when was the first time you guys saw this movie? Um, I think I saw this movie on network cable. I believe when I was a kid for the first time. Um, I liked it. I, when I was a kid, I thought this movie was amazing. Yeah, I actually saw this one as part of an amazing thing my mom did uh, when we were younger. Um, around the time I was pretty young, my mom was moving us to, we were getting moved to Michigan because my dad, who was actually in the Air Force, uh, not the Navy, the Air Force, was uh, changing to go to K.I. Sawyer Air Force Base in Michigan. And my mom knew we weren't going to have a lot of money and we weren't going to have access to watch TV and stuff. So they, mom and dad ordered HBO for all of a couple of months maybe even a call, like a month, but my mom bought a bunch of blank VHS tapes, stuck them in the VCR and just recorded an entire night's worth of HBO movies mm -hmm. onto one VHS. So we could take it to uh, take it to Michigan and watch it from there. And that's where a lot of my earliest seminal movie memories are from. Uh, some of them good, some of them bad, some of them from probably movies that show up on HBO at 10 o'clock that a kid my age really shouldn't have seen. Um, but uh, that's a topic for another day. Um, but that's when I first saw it. And same as Heather, the aerials were amazing. The, the mm -hmm. flying was, was crazy, uh, really good, really captivating. And I remember thinking to myself, man, this movie is awesome. Yeah. And then, yeah. And, and, that, and that's, that's kind of my, my thought too. I don't remember exactly when I saw it for the first time. Um, I, um, I had a, probably when I was nine, I think eight or nine, I was, uh, I had a really big surgery on my leg and I actually had the entire pediatric wing to myself for a whole week. So the, the VCR just lived in my room that entire time. I watched a lot mm -hmm. of movies. Then this is probably when I saw that, um, can't be certain. It's just kind of one of those movies that everybody's seen. Mm -hmm. Um, and it had been a long time since I actually, um, uh, since I, um, had seen the whole thing like beginning to end uh and so watching it now is a little <laughs> bit different experience so i'm gonna go last <laughs> you guys could go first so this is exactly why review movies exists and what's funny is there's been a whole lot of times where Trevor and I have watched a movie and I've actually gained a new appreciation for the movie on watching it a second time. Hey, I really liked this. Hey, I really liked this. This was awesome. This actor did a great job. This sound, this element, this plot, um, you know, that was, that was really something special, but I got to tell you that this is the first time that I can remember that we watched a movie in the rearview mirror. And I thought, my God, what did I like about this movie? Um, well, it had to be all the aerial stuff, right? Uh, right. I mean, it, honestly, the Rotten Tomatoes description is not all that far off uh, mm -mm. because basically the stuff in the air is groundbreaking and amazing and cool. Um, cannot imagine how long it took to film that stuff. Uh, but anytime they're on the ground, it is 
it is not exceptionally exceptionally great. Um, and I will preface this because I honestly like to say this anytime that I'm going to say something negative about a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, understand first that movies are the culmination of people's months and months and months of work. And yeah. even a movie that does not do well at the box office, does not make money, uh, maybe a lot of people don't think it's good, it still represents a lot of work that a person has put in. So anytime I'm going to say something negative or critical about a movie, I certainly don't ever want it to come across as a slap at the individual or anything personal against the individuals who made the movie. Again, this movie made a ton of money. It launched Tom Cruise's career. All mm-hmm. of these people are probably still very happy they were in the movie. And the movie wound up doing really well, obviously. But... On the second watch, I I could not have liked it less. Um, uh, Heather, what did you think uh, uh, watching it the second time? It's funny that you say that because I thought this movie was, aside from the aerial stuff, right? Like that part was truly amazing. The rest of the movie was absolutely terrible. The dialogue is poor. The, the score for this movie was awful. Um, they overused a lot of the music way too much. It plays Danger Zone at least three times. Uh, you know, and you would think Danger Zone is the overused song. It's not. No, no, it's, it's not. not the overused um, song. Take My no. Breath Away is the overused yes. song. Well, I think they um, used it in at least five different scenes. Basically, anytime that Maverick and Charlie were alone, Take My Breath yeah. Away was on. Yes, it was. And it was like, it was awful. They just kept playing it. It was like, make it stop. <laughs> it, it just, it fades in and fades out. Yes, it did. Like, yeah. Like for, for the rest of the day afterwards, I was like, no, 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 no. Like it, just, it just, it sticks. It just stuck. Um, and Trevor, I, I honestly, um, I do like to preface. I said, if before I'm going to be critical of a movie, um, I do want people to understand it is still a culmination of great work. It's a good film. It does well, but it's a movie that on the rewatch, I was absolutely blown away by how much I disliked it. Um, well, my dad always said that the movie is fine when it's in the air, but when it's on the ground, it's a different story. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and, and for that, I'll actually point to the second sentence of Roger Ebert's review uh, that I saved and held back from you guys because I thought it was it, it nails it. It says the dogfights are absolutely the best since Clint Eastwood's aerial scenes in Firefox. But look out for the scenes where people talk to one another. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you're he's he's not wrong. Um, because some of the dialogue, there's stuff that is said that you're going to say to yourself, who says that? Right. Right. That's what they say. So one of the things that Scotty and I talked about when we watched the film was that the timing, right. Was just not good in the dialogue. And then there were no, like the jokes just didn't land. They, they were just poorly written, poorly delivered. (laughs) Like they just, they were bad. Yeah. They didn't land. Good joke. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. (laughs) It's, um, yeah, I, I said uh, I said I'll go last, and um, uh, let's see how I can say this delicately as possible. Um, this movie is absolute crap. Um, you know <laughs> the the flying sequences. I'm not going to take anything away from them. They're incredible. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, but there's a lot more to a movie than cool stunts. Okay, and this movie's got none of it. This mm-hmm. is this is a uh, really probably one of the probably one of the the worst movies that people reflect on right and people just they they, they forget mm-hmm. the rest of the movie all they remember is the flying sequences right but there's that's whole, all that's worth remembering that's all that's worth remembering yeah because there's there's a whole nother like 
hour and a half worth of, of screen time that you quite literally have to suffer through and suffer. I mean, because it is really, really cringeworthy. Mm -hmm. It is completely terrible. Honestly, probably one of Tom Cruise's weakest movies that he's ever done. Maybe his worst. Um, yeah. It's, it's really, really terrible in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, but you can't really, you can't really end the conversation there when you talk about it, you know, because, no. because it is pretty remarkable what they were able to do with these, with these fighter jets and all that. Mm -hmm. um, and really, I mean, it kind of set up what a blockbuster is going to be moving forward, yeah. that what ingredients you need to have. Cause I mean, he did this a few years after this, you know, he, they, they tried the same kind of, um, they tried the same kind of uh, plot formula when they did the uh, days of thunder. I mean, that was sort of the same thing. Yeah. Um, this, and I haven't seen that in a long time either. So maybe I'm not remembering it right, but I think yeah. I remembered it being better than this. Um, um, his chemistry with the lead, I think, was better with Nicole Kidman. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, he was married to her or they, it was. Right. Uh, you hope yeah. so. They were romantic at the time, but yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, this is this is just not good. And I, I caution anybody that, that thinks this is a great movie, you know, be careful when you rewatch it again, <laughs> if you haven't seen it in a long time, because I don't know, man, there's just something about Tom Cruise and Anthony Edwards singing. You lost that love and feeling that just sounds like <laughs> nails on a chalkboard to me, man. OK, Perfect. <laughs> Perfect segue, sir. Absolutely perfect segue. So again, you go back and you look at a lot of the elements of the movie and you try to view them in their proper context. So yes, the scene where Maverick tries to pick up a lady at a bar with a karaoke microphone singing a song that at the time of the movie's release was 20 plus years old mm -hmm, and right. what was not especially popular wasn't an anthem. Like it's not, again, I go to weddings and DJ weddings. Nobody asks for this song. Mm-hmm. So like no staying power. So why that song? Well, it's a breakup song, secondly. Yeah. So perhaps they were hoping to get, uh, you know, a bump on the back end after it. You know, oh, hey, this song is popular again. Let's mm -hmm. go back to E.T. for a second. He's dropping Reese's Pieces for E.T. to find in the forest and lead him back yes. to his house. Mm -hmm. um, that was supposed to be M&M's. Mm -hmm. uh, and M&M said, no, we don't want our product used that way. And they found a candy that was about to be canceled. They're about to yank it from the shelves for poor sales. Mm -hmm. Now it's a staple. Um, mm -hmm. So perhaps that was the hope. Uh, maybe they wanted to use something else, but that was all they could afford. So in a fit of, well, that, that might be it. In a fit of righteous rage, I did come up with four songs that I thought would be much better fits uh, for a gentleman to sing karaoke to a female with the help of friends uh, in the interest of a romantic relationship. Okay, so um, be before, you, before you deliver these, I need to, yes. this is what we're going to do. You're going to say them. And Heather, you need to envision Scotty serenading you karaoke style with, with me, <laughs> with me as well. Okay. Okay. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's all going to be, you know, because that's how it started. It was, it was, right, right. Yep. It was Guy and his friend trying to woo the girl. So that's right. Scotty's trying to woo you. I'm the wingman, karaoke style. Mm -hmm. You tell us if it would work for you. Go. Awesome. Yes. Okay. Now, all the more ironic given that one of our first romantic moments came when she heard me singing in an open mic night back in the day when my voice worked. But uh, anyway, <laughs> so song number one 
And I can't fight this feeling anymore. Released in 1983. I didn't ask you to sing it. I just wanted to tell it. Well, hey, can't fight this feeling is the song you do that to. You don't like, you can't just say that. Yeah, can't fight this feeling by REO Speedwagon. Heather, what do you think? Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Okay. Um, All right. A little little R&B vibe. Just the two of us. Grover Washington Jr. Yes. Yes, I can see that. Mm-hmm. That, I'd say that fits. Um, Stevie Wonder, I just called to say I love you. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I think that's it. I don't even know what the fourth one is, but I think that's it. Yep. <laughs> that's that a, would, that's that was a, a better fit. The, that's a great one for the group to come in on too, right? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. He's like, no, New Year's Day. And then everybody else comes in. I just called. And that would be great. They'd all come in. It would be very surprising. <laughs> and last but not least, if you wanted to go straight there, right to... In, in Top Gun lingo, if you want to skip missiles and go straight to guns, uh, you could pick Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye, which was released in 1982. <laughs> I I think, uh, yeah, that that's also a good choice, but I think um, I, I think the other one was better. Yeah, no, I again, no dig on the Righteous Brothers. It's a good song. It's a fun song. But I just, it was a weird thing looking back because when I heard that, I was like, okay, was that, that song just really popular at the time the movie came out? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, at least, again, unless somebody who was alive when that movie came out, when this movie came out, wants to uh, correct me on that on social media. Um, but I'm not aware that it was. Now, you um, used to do like host karaoke nights back when we were in school. I did. Mm-hmm. I seem to remember a whole bunch of us coming up to one of your nights once, and we all sang this song. <laughs> I do not remember oh, us singing this song. That's no, um, I, I, I kind of remember that. Or maybe well, the, the, m- maybe someone else queued it up and the whole bar went to it. But my mind, my memory says that this was a karaoke song one night when we all came uh, out there. Whether or not we correct we whether or not we requested it or somebody else did, it was sung. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. Shout out to Daytona's pub for my uh, for my college gig there. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, and something else about the movie. Again, I wrote down a couple of things about the movie that kind of that kind of rubbed me the wrong way on the review. Um, one of them is a detail that I didn't really like, but then upon some reading, there might be a reason for it. Uh, so Goose's death makes no sense to me. Um, Oh, Not yeah. the fact that he dies, but the way he dies makes no sense to me. How does a man wearing a helmet die of a head injury? Well, this is why you have to, you know, fasten your seatbelt when the captain turns on the fastened seatbelt side so you don't <laughs> pop the top when they hit the uh, turbulence there. But you're right. I'm not sure I get it either. That's a heck of a head injury. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe he was unconscious and when he landed in the water, he inhaled water and drowned. I don't know. That's one thought well, too. But yeah, when Maverick I, pulls him up. He's got a blood. He's got a wound coming from the, like over his eye, like right ooh. here, and he's unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't know. Now, to, to a clarifying context detail, um, we do know the Navy was thoroughly involved in the making of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, if you don't know, there were the Navy did actually set up recruiting stations outside of theaters when this movie was screened and got a big bump in uh in in recruits from from what i was from what i read um apparently the navy was involved in the film and the original script of the film had goose dying in a crash on the deck Mm -hmm. and the navy did not like the way it made their 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 carriers and their planes look so they balked it Mm -hmm. so they had to come up with something that didn't involve a crash correct 
even though the plane still, you know, crashed, crashed. Up crashing. Yeah. 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 Um, and so basically the idea is that now I did talk to one person who actually said that they thought that um, the one thing wrong with it is when the canopy ejects, it does not go like the, the pilot does not go out right out. Like the canopy flies up, like goes way up high to where the person will be at no risk of hitting it. Um, yeah. But, but then you can say, Hey, the canopy didn't deploy like it was supposed to, you know, wada, wada, wada. Um, but that was, that was one thing that caught me the wrong way was, um, and then after Goose's death. Oh, this was terrible. Yeah. Heather, you go ahead and talk about this a little bit. So this was absolutely awful. Like it's been a couple of hours maybe since, since his death. Right. And everyone is like, you gotta, you just gotta let it go, man. Like you just gotta get over it. I'm like, it's been a couple of hours. Like give him just chill. Okay. man Yeah. Like this is not, this is not okay. Like the way that um, Viper tells him like, you just, yeah, you just got to move on. Yeah. And then uh, Goose's we wife. We lost a lot of good men um, in Nam. Deal with it, kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then Goose's wife, um, you know, at the same time, you know, was telling him, well, you know, he would want you to keep flying. You just keep going. And uh, okay, but just give him some time. Like, yeah, really. So this goes back to one of the non-realistic parts of the movie. Maverick is holding Goose's stuff in his hands after having just cleaned out his place. Oh, yeah. And, and a wife, I don't care. I don't care how patriotic, how much loving that wife was. No wife who just lost her husband 48 hours ago with a young child is going to give mm-hmm. two craps about the job. No. Mm-hmm. She is not going to say that. <laughs> you do, do whatever you want. I'm still grieving my own husband, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's the kind of thing you would say after having clarity about it months, maybe years later. A couple of days, no, 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 mm-hmm. no, no. Yeah, this, and I, I, Tom Skerritt's delivery when he comes in to the bathroom and Maverick's just like leaning over the sink and he just goes, Goose is dead. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Like, yeah. Like, I think like he already just, knew that. Yeah. Like, like he's just delivering, you know, like he's delivering a, a, a weather report. Skies are cloudy today, Maverick. <laughs> Goose is dead. Skies are cloudy and your Rio is gone. Yeah. So here, we're going to stick you with Tim Robbins for the climactic battle. You've never flown with them before, but hey, good luck. Yeah, yeah, quite a, quite a few things about that that were troubling as well. Um, I also didn't buy the rivalry between Maverick and Iceman, um, and then all of that seems. To oh kind of, yeah, all of that seems to kind of wash away at the very end of the movie when it's just kind of like, oh hey, bro, you're actually you know pretty good. Yeah, I like you. <laughs> they, they don't well that's the thing they don't have enough interactions to really build it no uh, when when they do the chemistry between them is not exceptional in terms again of rivals it's not exceptional um you know so um i i, I don't want to talk too much about this because it's not the really the the focus point of the focal point of the show but um sure. you know just in interest of coming to a, a, a stopping point here for this um the the sequel has come out um as the day we're recording it um i've seen it today um <laughs> so it's uh it's out now and i think it's it's worth acknowledging some of the the downfalls of the original and looking at how they've almost kind of addressed it Really? In the, in the new release. Yeah. I mean, there's some. Without spoilers, of course. No, I'm not going to say anything bad, but you know, like the, you know, 
Goose and, and Iceman and all that, you know, I mean, obviously Goose isn't going to be in it. And um, they were able to get Val Kilmer in for a fraction of a second. But I mean, all the all the little nuances that we say are missing from this movie, they've somehow figured out how to stick that into the sequel. And what we have here is a sequel that has obviously the the flying sequences are going to be more impressive because we have almost 40 years of technological advancements in filmmaking um mm-hmm. i mean when i first saw the trailer i was kicking that around like this is the whole reason they're making this movie oh like yeah. i just pictured i pictured tom cruise kicking his way into somebody's office and just saying like we can do so many cooler shots <laughs> yeah well they they figured out a way to put six imax lenses into the cockpit of these of these planes six wow. imax lenses come on man they're all in there yeah um incredible so yeah i i think it goes without saying that the the flying scenes are absolutely incredible it looks amazing it sounds amazing it's just what they're able to do with these planes and with the cameras to get everything together incredible again i mean Mm -hmm. not taking that away but where Mm -hmm. they've really improved upon is the storytelling because holy mackerel this this has a this new movie has a really really surprisingly powerful story to go with it that never feels dull that's never boring that is never cheesy or cringeworthy at all and they do kind of hit like a few of the same story beats mm-hmm. as the original like yeah you know, we, we don't have we don't have you lost that love and feeling but we do have Darn. a we we do have a bar sing-along but it's mm-hmm. nowhere. It, it's much more believable. It's much more um, uh, uh, realistic, I guess. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, it's clearly not one of the four I picked because you would have reacted much differently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's 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 different. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say. I mean, you look at the take a look at the soundtrack, and you can probably tell which one it's gonna be. But you know, sure. I didn't. I didn't know anything about the storyline going into the movie. So if you know anything of it, that's fine or whatever. But if you're completely, completely clueless as to what this story's about, like I was no idea at all who yeah. anybody was playing, mm-hmm. what the story was going to be, what their mission was going to be, what mm-hmm. Maverick's role was in this. I knew none of it. So everything was a big surprise to me. And um, that's kind of how I try to approach these movies anyway, mm-hmm. is yeah. to not really is to go in as blind as possible. So mm-hmm. when these trailers come out and people like dissect it, you know, Oh my God, what, look at the third frame. You, this is going to be, is it, is, Pat, <laughs> is Patrick Stewart going to be a Dr. Strange? Oh my God. I thought I saw a wheelchair. You know? Oh yeah. Gosh. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And people with know, way more time on their hands than me. Yeah. So, I mean, I saw the first trailer for this when it came out, it was like, Oh, cool. It's going to be awesome. But, you know? But, yep. Um, yeah. So, all the all the little subtle impacts of the story as it evolves mm-hmm. really really hit very hard and it is a really 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 great movie like well there there are a lot of there are a lot of plot points to address coming out of the first movie right um you know again nothing i'm going to say hasn't appeared in a trailer uh my general principle on films is i'm going to watch the first two trailers you put out more than two. I'm not watching the third one. I'm not watching anyone after that. I'm not watching behind the shit. Just I'm going to watch trailer one, trailer two, and I'm sold or I'm not. Um, definitely was sold on this after the first trailer, um, but they've set some stuff up, right? Like you're going to have to, something about Goose's death is going to have an impact on the film. Um, 
I did remember that at the end of the original Top Gun, Tom Cruise was an instructor. He had his hat on. He was in the bar preparing to be an instructor. But the trailer opens with, you are not my first choice. Like he somehow mm-hmm. is not. Um, and, and then part of the trailer is Maverick himself saying, I'm not a teacher. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I know you're you're sitting here knowing everything uh, about how that uh, how that eventually well, and I'm not, itself, yeah, but. and I'm, I'm not going to give anything up on it either. So sure. It's, please don't. It's, yeah. It's, um, I would be, I would be more than ready to see it again if the opportunity were to ever present itself. So <laughs> I am, um, it's, it's fantastic. And it will, I, I'm probably going to have to reserve a spot in my best of list at the end of the year for it. So, oh, wow. Um, nice. so can we, so I don't want to get ahead of myself and say best sequel ever made. But yeah. mm-hmm. coming from the piece of crap in 1986 <laughs> <laughs> to, to then having a sequel that came out, what, 36 years later? Yep. I mean, I don't know. It's that one's going to be in the top 10 at the end of the year, probably. I mean, yeah. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know how you couldn't say that it's the best sequel ever because it builds upon. Uh, something that is um, uh, pure and utter uh, dog poo coming from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah. And so can we just address some of the specifics of, of what made it so bad? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. So the volleyball scene. Um, oh yeah. That <laughs> was just like, it was really long, right? Like it was not this quick, like, Hey, they're playing volleyball on the beach. No, it was like this long drawn out. Like I, I wish I'd had a stopwatch to, yeah. to see how long this lasted, but you, you really well, don't understand why they, it, they put that scene out there. Yeah. That seems for you. No. Well, okay. So that's what, well, okay. Now that's what I told Scotty initially, but he was like, yeah, but this, this film wasn't targeted towards women. And I was like, well, Didn't I think that's, like it was, I mean, you know, I, th- I think, I think on the whole, it wasn't. So that scene was for me, but it still just felt like it was just really just kind of forced in there and very, very random. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy the eye candy. Um, but, um, but it just seemed really kind of out of place for the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And then, and then the scene where, you know, where they actually went back and filmed this later um, after test audiences said they were upset that there wasn't a love scene. Um, so with Maverick and Charlie, I mean, when they kiss, they look like two 14 year olds who have never kissed before. They have no <laughs> clue what they're doing. <laughs> it, a little, a, a little excessive. Yes. Um, now the volleyball scene does point to one of the two, I'll call them dirty little secrets that tend to surround this movie. Um, hmm. one of which I'm not going to talk about because it is funny and hilarious to hear about, but not really worth talking about. The one I will talk about is the joke that Tom Cruise was shorter than everybody. So they found a million ways to make him look the same height as his coworker, as his co-stars. Yes. Um, you know, everybody's either slouching when they talk to him or sitting in a chair or walking in front of or behind him. Um, that's, that's the one thing that I think is kind of humorous enough to talk about, but the other one, you know, uh, well, where this uh, film is surrounded. Yeah. So I will say that uh, if it, he, he must have be more sure of himself now that he's approaching 60, because um, Miles Teller, I guess, how tall is he? Probably over probably six decently, feet. decently tall, yeah, I think. Yeah, probably like six feet tall. Maybe. I don't know. Um, yeah. Tom Cruise looks up at him the whole movie. They, huh. they don't they don't they don't hide that at all. 
So, well, and it may not even, and, and let's, let's clarify as well. Again, not, not to take any shots at digs at Tom Cruise. I don't know him. Don't know his life. Don't know his choices. That could have easily been something that Tony Scott could have said. He does not look shorter than anyone. You know, I mean, it, it could have been something that had nothing to do with him. That's true. Um, they don't want their star to be dwarfed. So they kind of change things around a little bit, but right. Right. But, uh, um, but yeah, no, I, I would say, I would agree with Heather. I felt like there were some, you know, those, those choices were not especially well-made, but at the end of the day, again, one of the things I go, I've gone back to again, when Trevor and I have been discussing movies. Um, yeah. For all of its faults, it's a summer blockbuster because of how much money it made. Mm-hmm. Um, it followed the formula. As he said, it followed the formula for movies later to come after it. Um, again, you think about Pearl Harbor, right? A movie that we reviewed early in this podcast that was a lot of stellar action scenes wrapped around a really laughably bad story that mm-hmm. still made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sh- shockingly so. And that was almost that was over three hours long. And this one is nice mm-hmm. and neat under two hours, so that's yes. good. Um, um, but, but yeah, uh, let's uh, to to kind of put a ribbon on it, I guess. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. You know, after you seeing it in the rear view, you know my thoughts. <laughs> I've said it numerous times. I'm 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 censoring myself of what I really want to say, but mm-hmm. uh yeah, let, let's hear y'all's thoughts on that. Go ahead, honey. The uh the aerial scenes are incredible. Um they're filmed and choreographed extremely well, especially for the time with the technology that they had. Um and everything else was kind of terrible. The dialogue was bad. Um the, the it wasn't funny. Um, and I don't think that the, I don't think Kelly McGillis was, I don't know. They didn't do a good job with her wardrobe. It wasn't like, she wasn't this super sexy, like really pretty. I don't know. She's not ugly, but I just didn't like, if they were going to make it the love interest, I just didn't think that was the best choice. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, aside from the aerial stuff, the rest of it was pretty bad. Um, for me in the rear view, again, a, a lot of the things I have said about this film, obviously notwithstanding, um, in the rear view, it's the first time that me and you have watched a movie in the rear view, Trevor and I have said this movie is significantly worse than I remember. Um, because it, it, it was there, there's a lot of things where as a kid, you see a movie and it might just be a case of, as a kid, I see this and I think this makes a good movie as an adult. Now it takes a little more to fill my glass when I watch a movie. And so Top Gun did not have the other things that were supposed to fill my glass. You know, that, that really strong dialogue, those good connections, those, those logical things that make sense in a movie where the story moves forward. Um, so no, it's significantly worse in the review, unfortunately, but again, Still a really good summer blockbuster, made a lot of money, launched a lot of careers and, uh, you know, did every bit what it was supposed to do when it was put on the table. Right. Well, now we can toss this one out and just remember the the sequel. So go see Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> Top Gun Maverick in theaters. We'll, we'll, later. Uh, we, we'll ask Paramount to send us that check for the endorsement so we can cover the uh, the bill. Yeah. There it is. About. <laughs> they, made, they made enough money over Memorial Day weekend to cover that. So, yeah, we're good. But. That's right. Uh, so I guess to move us forward, um, 
one other thing we're doing for the listeners to give them an opportunity to interact with us even more is we're going to reveal our next month's movies. So you would have the opportunity to watch them before the episode comes out. Maybe give us some feedback, some things you might like us to talk about, some questions. Uh, and so July, we're going to be looking at patriotic movies. So uh, for the rest of the team, what's your, uh, what is your patriotic movie? Oh, man. Um, the American President. Oh, I think I might do that one. Yes. Yeah. I can't wait for Good that. Film. Then we got some uh, get to talk a little bit about some Aaron Sorkin on that one. Yes. I, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Once or twice, I may have quoted his uh, his ending monologue uh, talking to folks <laughs> about that. I, you know, we'll talk about that in the episode, but I there's yeah. a couple parts of dialogue in that film that are pretty darn spot on about American politics. Well, I think that when you talk about movie presidents, he's one of the Michael Douglas's character. And that's one of the top ones that kind of comes back. It's like, why isn't this guy real? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Absolutely. Uh, Trevor, how about you, man? Well, um, I might stay on theme with that and other fictitious presidents that I wish were real. Let's do um, let's do Harrison Ford from Air Force One. All right. Air Force One. Yeah. What do you got? So I'm going to go a little bit off book on that. Um, I think it might be a stretch to call this a patriotic movie, but I think it does represent uh, one of the coolest parts of of American history. um, And that is going to be Apollo 13. Um, I'm going to do Apollo 13. That's no stretch. That's patriotic. (laughs) Love that movie. Um, One of the few movies that when I watch it, I actually still move to tears at the end of it every time Mm -hmm. Um, without a lie. It pulls on me. Yeah. Well, we'll get to watching that. Um, and uh, we'll be back in July for another episode. Three movies. You watch them. Air Force One, American President, Apollo 13, all 90s movies. I'll start with an A. Uh, pretty cool. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Sounds about right, folks. We always appreciate everybody taking the time to listen with us. We would love to have you interact with us on social media. Uh, send us any questions, feedback, anything we can do to make the show better for you. Uh, anyway, otherwise, have a wonderful, wonderful June, and we'll see you on the flip side in July. <laughs>